Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and add a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. So yesterday, I stepped out onto a sun-kissed sidewalk following my therapy appointment, during which I had a pretty significant breakthrough while reprocessing some old memories. And as I walked to my car, I realized I was being tracked and followed. There was a presence keeping my same pace, and it didn't feel ominous or menacing. So erring on the side of someone coincidentally taking a parallel path, I glanced over my shoulder to find their face, and I saw no one. Not a single human or animal in the vicinity in any direction. So I'm a little bugged out. I I paused briefly in the middle of the street. And then suddenly, I felt a tug on my lower half of my hoodie. Almost as subtle as a gust of wind blowing by or a hand grazing a wall. And chills raised on my neck. So I swiveled instantly, this time more alert, only to find no one. So chalking it up to heightened sensitivity post-therapy, I opened my car door and I sat down and I decided to breathe deeply for a few minutes before operating heavy machinery and in one of the busiest cities of the world at that. And then there in my rear view mirror, sitting and breathing in my backseat was an eight-year-old child. More specifically... Eight-year-old me, Allison. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. She must have sneaked out of my therapist's office and tagged along after the appointment like a duckling following its mom to the pond. But I wasn't upset. In fact, she was super adorable, and I'd never felt such a maternal protectiveness and affection for her. For the first time, it seemed she felt safe to be around me. Judging by the way she sat with her limbs sprawled every which way, jabbering on and on about new vocabulary words she learned, totally unrehearsed and unpolished, unlike the rest of her interactions. And she frequently paused to listen for my input and insight, which, you know, she mentally recorded while wearing the cutest smirk of admiration mixed with keen focus, as if we had limited time together and we weren't stuck with each other forever. This level of intimacy and knowing and acceptance was hard to describe. It's, it's beyond that of a lover or best friend. She's closer than a sister. Our bond is stronger than a mother and daughter. It is, in fact, the most intimate relationship any of us ever form, the one with ourselves. So for a half hour, we sat in the parking lot and talked, and slowly she opened up about her interests and hopes and fears, and we laughed a lot. I see where I get my sense of humor. And we cried a little, and she talked some more. And I told her that I loved her, almost surprising myself as the words left my lips. And I apologized for not being around the way she needed. But after this conversation, I knew something had forever changed. Little one was more than a road trip buddy. Little one and I were about to rediscover and find home together, starting with each other. This full self-integration is perhaps one of the most healing and empowering journeys on which we embark. And today, 
am extending an invitation to you. Today, we are sitting down with psychotherapist Leah Mankow, who you may know on Instagram as at Alyssa Marie Wellness. Um, she helps people connect with their inner child for holistic healing. Leah is a licensed clinical social worker. She's trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic modalities, with her earlier stages taking place at Harbor UCLA Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Outpatient and spanning many years as a therapist in the juvenile justice system. She has a special interest in the neurobiology of trauma, meaning the effects of trauma on the brain, as well as working with people who experience depression, anxiety, trauma, and loss, aka human beings. Please welcome to the show, Leah. Hi, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. So I think just to get everyone acquainted with you, how did you get started in this space and what attracted you to therapy as a profession? So my story does date back kind of towards childhood. I've always admired people who were in the helping professions. When I was in elementary school, I read books on Martin Luther King, Gandhi, did my book reports on them. So I knew growing up that I wanted to help people and I didn't know what that looked like. So when I finished undergrad, I got my bachelor's degree in sociology with a minor in social work. I thought, I want to be a social worker. I didn't know what that looked like. I just knew that social workers helped people. And so when I went to graduate school, the internships that I had were all clinical based, like therapy based. And I thought my internships were going to be creating organizations and connecting people to like linkages. And that's not where they placed me. So where they ended up placing me were more clinical um, fields and I, I ended up falling in love with it and I found mm-hmm. that you can combine like the sociological aspects within mental health. Yes um, so th- we're gonna be talking a lot about inner child work today. Yes. There's a conspicuousness to the title. I think it might lend us to believe that we can predict where this conversation is going um, or it might register as a silly theory in pop psychology Can you explain the origins and meaning of inner child theory and how it's relevant to all of us today? Sure. So I know that the term inner child was coined by a psychoanalyst. I can't remember his name, but the idea of the inner child is that we all have childlike aspects of ourselves embedded in our subconscious minds. Hmm. And these are the youngest versions of ourselves that either we can remember or that we don't remember that hold our pain, our fears, our unmet needs. They're the parts of ourselves that are more likely to show up when our needs aren't being met or that when we're feeling angry or upset. So pieces of us that were developing before we had the verbal skills yes, to communicate. Absolutely. Identify. Our inner child begins the moment that we're born. Except we are still carrying them today, whether or not we're acknowledging that they're mm-hmm. in tow. Yes, okay. exactly. Hmm. So when we were toddlers and children, how did we develop our self-identity? We developed our self-identity through our immediate childhood experiences. We developed it through what was modeled for us in the home, what we saw with our parents, how they interacted with each other, how they interacted with us, how they treated us, how they spoke to us, how they parented us, how they nurtured us. We we internalized those experiences and then we develop our identity based on what they projected onto us. So if our parents were loving and nurturing and kind, 
we kind of develop the ability to be nurturing, loving, and kind to ourselves and others. Hmm. But if our parents were dismissive or neglectful or not present, then we find that we can do those same things to ourselves Mm -hmm. subconsciously or to others. So as adults, where do these pillars of self show up? We notice these pillars of self show up in our interpersonal relationships. Okay. Right. <laughs> Which isn't just right. romantic. It's also It's our friendships. Bosses. Yes, it's our friendships. It's mm-hmm. our bot like you said, it's our bosses, it's our coworkers, it's how we it's how we manage disappointment from other people. It's how we manage it's how we manage the way other people communicate with us. It's our perception of how what other people are saying to us and mm. how they treat us. We see those things show up in our relationships. And how would we because I'm imagining if, if we think about these different pillars as columns and they're sort of the architecture of ourselves, mm-hmm. h- how do we change the columns to healthier ones if they're dysfunctional without the entire self collapsing? Oh, or that's such a good question. Do we have to kind of collapse and rebuild something new? Ooh, that that's <laughs> a really good question. So let me tell you how I operate with my clients, and mm-hmm. I believe in equifinality, meaning people can do things very differently and we can end up in the same destination. Mm-hmm. But the way that I do it with my clients is first we acknowledge that there's an inner child and we acknowledge their attachment and their relationship with their parents. Because mm-hmm. you can't kind of deconstruct something without knowing what you're deconstructing, mm-hmm. right? And it's so important to also learn coping skills to manage that feeling when you collapse. I think sometimes when people want to do inner child work, they want to do it with a pretty little bow on top. But but it's not always that easy. You're going to come upon really difficult memories, really difficult truths. And it's also important to know that if you collapse, that's okay too. It looks like an article online said that by eight years old, we will have a relatively stable idea of our own personality traits and dispositions and whether we feel like a valuable and competent person. These individual differences in personality and feelings of self-worth have influenced our approach in social situations, academic achievement, career pursuits, relationship dynamics, as you're mentioning. So really, the subconscious is going to repeat these patterns until we bring them to the light and examine the pieces and decide what to kind of keep, toss, or transform. On your Instagram, I've seen that you also share how pain travels through family lines until someone is ready to heal. And I think the way it was phrased is by going through the agony, we'll no longer pass the poison chalice to the next generation. That was on your Instagram. And I was like, ooh, double tap, double tap. (laughs) But we have to stop carrying our parents' traumas around. And if we aren't aware of what those are, we need to pause and reflect on the pain and residual trauma we inherited and, and are embodying. And I think that brings us to the fact that none of our childhoods were perfect, right? We didn't have all of our psychological, social, developmental needs met perfectly. But as sentient beings, we're gathering lessons along the way. We're finding our own style of adapting and compensating. It seems like I've hit a certain ceiling in my self-evolution. And until I revisit, you know, the pieces that had molded, me up until that point I really 
can't kind of break past. So for people listening and watching, I just wonder if you think about your own self-evolution, if there are blocks, if there are spaces that really seem like, oh, I can't occupy that space, it's too intimidating, or um, there are challenges that seem repetitive and you're like, oh, I don't want to learn this lesson. Like what is going on from earlier narratives that may have the tools and keys for you to find freedom if you would just allow yourself to kind of spend some time with them, right? Yeah. Seem, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not the therapist, so <laughs> don't, don't listen to me. <laughs> just DM Leah. <laughs> so let's enter the process then of inner child work. What are the reasons and ways to heal your inner child? So the reasons I recommend that people heal their inner child is because I do believe that going into our earliest disappointments can help us learn how to manage the disappointments we're experiencing now. All of the feelings that we have right now in adulthood, they're not new. Hmm. They they always come from somewhere in the past, hmm. right? So oftentimes when a client is coming to me with feelings of anxiety or depression, I will ask, what was the earliest age you felt this way before? And oftentimes they can trace that age to elementary school or or high school. So what mm. happens is that feeling kind of just evolves and the problem changes, right? But the root stays the same. Hmm. So that's why it's important to heal the inner child. How we heal that inner child is, well, first you want to acknowledge that there is a younger version of yourself that comes out every now and again. Other ways to heal your inner child is to be able to have conversations with that younger version of yourself. Something that I recommend people doing if they feel comfortable doing this would be to pull out a photo of themselves when they were younger, probably maybe a photo of themselves during an age where they felt most vulnerable or uncomfortable with themselves. And then I would have them write a letter to that younger version of themselves. To try to fix the child, to say, I'm here for you, to... I would say it's the latter, to be able to say, I'm here for you, and to be able to reparent that child, right? Mm. What, what is something you wish that child would have heard growing up? What is something that child needed to hear from their parents growing up? What is something that child needed to hear from their peers growing up or their teachers? Yeah. What is something that they wish that child knew now that they didn't know then? It's a beautiful exercise. Yeah. I know that it's been difficult for me to embrace my inner child. Notoriously, I've been very uh, quick to dismiss and neglect her. Mm -hmm. And more recently, I felt myself, you know, metaphorically embracing her and feeling like, whoa, I must have created this space as an adult now to be able to feel like I can offer this mm -hmm. to young Allison. And that's really powerful. I'm seeing it change my outer reality in every relationship. A common tool that I've also used for years in therapy is EMDR. So I would love to explain for those who are unaware, what is EMDR and how does it work? Is it something that we can administer ourselves? Okay, this is a great <laughs> question. And I explain this to a lot of people when they're, when they're calling to inquire about EMDR. And I do recommend, you know, after I explain it, sometimes it's still going to feel a little funny. Mm -hmm. So people can YouTube it because there are EMDR sessions on YouTube. But to begin, what EMDR is, and it stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. So I'm going to give a little bit of background information about trauma. So in EMDR, there is this belief that there are big T's and little T's when it comes to traumatic experiences. Now, a big T doesn't mean it's far worse than a little T. It's just ways to differentiate the different types of trauma. Big T's are traumas where you feel like almost you're about to die or you're going to die or you've witnessed something very traumatic. 
little T's are kind of like the smaller experiences that we experience throughout our lives that overwhelm our capacity to cope. So it could be the way a teacher looked at us, the way a parent looked at us, on ongoing neglect, things like that. Things that people wouldn't normally categorize as traumatic, but they were for you. Mm. So when a person experiences a traumatic event, that event gets stored into the body. It gets stored really into our cells and it kind of changes our reactions and experiences in this world. So that can lead to feeling more hypervigilant, more tense, more irritable, things like that. So what EMDR does is it seems to stimulate the memories and the feelings and the thoughts that are all associated with whatever traumatic experiences that you've had. And, you know, normally with trauma, people, rightfully so, don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about it. They they don't want to go there. And mm-hmm. that's normal. That's your body protecting you. But unfortunately, what that does is it leads to emotional harm in the long term. So mm. what EMDR does, it's not a talk therapy. It What it does is it uses your eye movements to go back and forth, mimicking what happens in REM sleep to be able to process kind of material that your mind has suppressed. Bilateral processing? Yeah, it's bilateral processing. Yep, it's called bilateral stimulation. So the, the eye movement's going back and forth. It You know, what we found or what they found is that it seems to stimulate a lot of the feelings associated with the trauma that have been repressed. And it, mm-hmm. it allows it to come out and to be felt in the present moment. And that's accessing both hemispheres, right? Yes. So left yeah. brain, right brain. Yes, and so conceptual and logical, but also the creative and emotional Absolutely. side of things. Absolutely. Are we able to do this ourselves safely? Sure. That's a good question. So of course, of course, people can do it by themselves. And I think it can be done safely. It, it really depends on person to person. Mm-hmm. But I think for maximum benefit of EMDR, it is so much better to do it with a trained professional. And what right? does the process look like? Can you walk me through if we were doing EMDR right now? Sure. So the process of EMDR is in phases. So the initial phase is obviously kind of um, the initial assessment, me getting to know you and me getting to understand what it is that you were coming in for therapy to therapy for. And then together we would identify what is the memory that you would like to reprocess? What is the memory that you would like to go over? And if and oftentimes people don't remember right that mm-hmm. what what they what they've been through and that's okay so emdr can also work with just the feelings okay so together we'll either identify what's the memory we're going to reprocess or what's the feeling you want to work on and once we've identified that then we identify what is a belief system that you've held on to for so long a negative belief system hmm. like i'm not good enough um, nobody's safe things like that so we take the memory or the feeling and we combine it with the belief system And then using those two things, we then begin to do the eye movement stimulation to help you then identify kind of the feelings, the thoughts, the sensations that have been repressed, that have been Mm. kind of buried under there. Um, And the whole purpose of that, too, is to allow the feelings to come out and to help you with identifying a healthier belief system. I skipped a step, actually. Sorry. So after the initial assessment, we then would work together to help you develop the coping skills to be able to manage kind of the distress that comes with doing EMDR. Because when you're doing EMDR, you're going to experience distress. And stabilization is key. It is so key, (laughs) right. I'm studying to get my certification in trauma-informed mindful movement facilitation. Ooh, that's awesome. Yes. <laughs> um, but in so doing, learning about trauma and mm-hmm. stabilization and 
reintegration yes. and is it's a very sensitive yeah. matter it is you you have to learn how to feel safe in your body mm-hmm. to a certain extent before doing emdr mm-hmm. if so if you already have that skill and um you're honest with yourself then you can do it you know emdr on your own but if you don't i highly recommend doing it with a professional yeah and maybe focusing on developing what those resources will be for you mm-hmm. if and when you want to be able to do this work Mm -hmm. starting with the coping skills in advance so you're not shocked by the experience and left vulnerable so the impact and the I guess desired effect of EMDR is to be able to revisit things with less of the same sting and re-traumatization yeah or is it to forget altogether to change the memory Mm -hmm. what is the main goal the main goal is it's definitely not to forget it because that's not possible but it is to be able to integrate the information into your daily life without having it impair you anymore Hmm. right so if some if let's say you went through something super traumatic and when you think about it it brings you up to a 10 like 1 to 10 10 is like super anxious super um Mm non-functional the goal with emdr is to have you to think about that same memory again but now you're at a zero like you can think about it you can process it and it doesn't give it doesn't um give you that same emotional reactivity as it did in the past and this can be for any anybody memory any memory yeah absolutely testing in school or performing on stage yeah or going to the grocery store absolutely I've had people I've done EMDR with people who have processed um where the memory was childhood traumatic abuse to a fear of planes getting on a plane Mm. right so EMDR really can work with um, any any of any of those issues. You're basically going into the computer uh-huh. <laughs> and changing up the hardware. Oh, I like that. Right? Yeah, like we're re. Yeah, we're just upgrading. Yeah, the hardware. Yeah, and software. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope my tech friends yeah. listening are impressed <laughs> with me. Okay, cool. Well, we're gonna take a, a quick break, and then when we come back, we will continue on this path of inner child healing. Ah. <sighs> So much to say, so much to learn. Welcome back. We're here hanging out with Leah and we are talking all things inner child. So so if we're wanting to foster a dialogue with our inner child, what are some things we can practice saying to them right now? Some things we can practice saying to our inner child are, I love you. I see you. I believe you. You're beautiful. You're Mm -hmm. good enough. There's nothing wrong with you. If you wanted to take it a little bit more personal, you could ask yourself, what did I need to hear from my parents growing up? Hmm. And then whatever those answers are, you can say those things to yourself. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. But healing. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to having kids, I'm guessing if we've healed our inner child, we have a maybe stronger prospect of parenting a child more healthfully. Is there a difference between reparenting our inner child versus parenting a real living biological child? You know, I don't think that there is. I think they require the same amount of love, care, and attention. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they're two separate things. Our inner child deserves just as much attention, love, respect, and curiosity 
as our real children do. Mm. And oftentimes when I post things on the inner child, I'll see some other psychologists who specialize in motherhood. They'll share my work and they'll say, and you can say this to your actual child as well. So it's Mm. really transferable. Wow. That's so important. I myself don't have kids. I'm Uh not sure I want kids Uh in this lifetime. Uh But knowing that a strong first step, no matter what, is for me to build a relationship with my younger self is like that's really heartwarming and encouraging Mm -hmm. to know that it will at least if if not only help me be a better parent it will help me be a better person to other people in all relationships absolutely yeah so you know we we're obsessed at least in our culture here in the states with like transformation and personal development and growth how can we know that we're making progress with our inner child work what will Mm be evident in our lives or in our experience how we know we're making progress is you know you do do a personal inventory ask yourself the things that are triggering me now are they the same things that triggered me before Mm. Um, pay attention to the ways that you handled your triggers in the past pay attention to the to your emotional reactivity from the past and ask yourself has my have my reactions to my to my triggers evolved or have they remained the same Hmm. Have I been able to remain composure when I'm being triggered and practice the pause? Or am I just Hmm. taking information and being really reactive, getting really upset, really angry? Hmm. You know, the personal inventory is really, really helpful in identifying if you've made progress. Other ways with identifying if you've made progress is just taking note of your perception of things and your way of viewing things. Hmm. Uh, If you can question, I think it's so important to, to question yourself too when you get triggered. And to question the stories that you have about other people when you're triggered too. Mm. Oftentimes we take things personal and we assume. And that's our ego talking. Our ego creates a lot of suffering. Mm. So learning, so growing also includes recognizing your ego and recognizing the stories that you're creating Mm -hmm. and acknowledging that they're just stories. They're not truths. Mm. Wow. So taking the stance of witness Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. of over-identifying. Yes. Yep. And where does self-sabotage play into all of this? (laughs) Self-sabotage really is embedded in our subconscious minds, right? It is Mm. it is this belief that you don't deserve good things Mm. or you're not worthy of having good things happen to you. So some for some people, self-sabotage can be as obvious as. Let's say starting arguments with people, right, starting arguments with people when you start to get really close to them and doing such so that you guys can't to create kind of like a distance or self-sabotage can be so subtle like not applying for certain jobs that you really want to apply for or not taking the leap of faith in Mm. doing things that are good for you how do we recognize when we're self-sabotaging that's where i kind of feel like therapy comes in because self-sabotaging can be so subconscious and embedded in our subconscious minds Mm -hmm. you know when you can work with a therapist there's that person that's holding up a mirror to those blind spots because for people who are used to Mm self-sabotaging it's it can be very egocentric which means there's no awareness of it there's no Mm. it's just normal that's just life that's just what it is Mm. that's how you grew up and that has become your norm so so it really helps to have a professional help you understand these are patterns that are rooted in something very deep. Mm-hmm. Did I answer the question? Yeah, okay. yeah. I think overall what I'm hearing as well is when we're doing this work and we're in a space of self-development and growth, our brain 
specializes in exploration and play and cooperation when we feel safe. Yeah. And when we feel frightened or unwanted, it specializes in managing feelings of fear. And Survival. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so introducing activities or relationships into our world and daily schedule, those small little acts of self-care to help us foster that safe place will allow the container for us to be able to do this kind of work and maybe be a little less frightened as we're going through it. I agree. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about attachment styles. Um, Something that forms an early childhood and characterizes our communication with others in the world is our attachment style. What are the main categories for how we've all learned to attach and connect? So the main categories of attachment are secure attachment, anxious ambivalent attachment, anxious avoidant attachment, and disorganized attachment. And we essentially develop our attachment styles through childhood and through our relationships with our caregivers. Okay. And can you give a brief explanation of what each is? Absolutely. So I'll start with disorganized attachment. So disorganized attachment is when there is no attachment at all. Right. So we typically can see disorganized attachment when the parent just really isn't present at all. They're not present physically. They're not present emotionally. A child will then develop um, develop a disorganized attachment. Um, Anxious avoidant attachment occurs when a parent is there and then they're not there. They're very inconsistent. And so sometimes what that leads to is a child avoiding their parent altogether. And children who are anxious avoidant tend to become anxious avoidant partners, right? So they Mm. avoid closeness in their intimate relationships. Anxious ambivalent attachment occurs when there's so much separation anxiety when the parent leaves the room. Okay. Right? There's a lot of separation anxiety when the parent leaves the room and then the parent comes back and the child still can't be soothed. Um, Mm. So a child with an anxious ambivalent attachment style you know, you will see this in adulthood as somebody who kind of in a relationship, they can it they can be with it or without it. Right. Mm. But they also experience a lot of distress with intimacy and a lot of distress when they're separated. OK. And then a secure attachment style is something that I hope we all strive for. And that is, you know, when your parents are nurturing and they're there and they're emotionally attuned and they're emotionally available, you feel secure in your relationship. And does the term parent also include whoever the first authority figure or guardian was or does it specifically refer to biology it's whoever the guardian is and i know specifically we have a a lot of adoption throughout my family so Mm -hmm. i I know that there are very unique needs that accompany people who do or do not know their biological parents Mm -hmm. but it's good to know that this work encompasses whoever the authority Mm -hmm. figure was speaking of secure attachments i think it's it's really helpful to have a target that we can all aim for Mm -hmm. (laughs) when we're doing this work and looking at our relationships what are traits of healthy relationships what are we going for okay perfect (laughs) so when we talk about healthy relationships right i like to think of the word interdependence Mm. right so if you were to categorize relationships as unhealthy and healthy unhealthy would be codependent Mm. And then healthy would be interdependent. And so in an interdependent relationship, you really want to strive for mutual respect, 
mutual trust, the ability to share the same activities while also respecting that the other person has a life outside of the relationship. Mm -hmm. The belief that your partner can go do something without you and they're still going to return, right? You want to strive for communication, low reactivity, so communicating very assertively, very calmly, not really blaming, but just sharing how you feel in a very in a very healthy state. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of just mutual reliance on each other while maintaining your independence. Okay. And that, of course, requires some emotional maturity. It does. <laughs> and, it does. And that means we have to deal with, with things that are painful and, and mm-hmm. traumatic. What is the best process for dealing with the guilt and the shame and the difficult feelings from the past? I would say... Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. So in order for us to work with shame, we really have to instill and internalize that you are not inherently bad. Mm-hmm. You are not created wrong. Wow. You are not broken. Right? You want to dismantle that belief. That's really touchy with mm-hmm. a lot of um, faith mm-hmm. ideologies. Mm-hmm. That oh, it is. That begin yeah. with brokenness. Yeah. I don't know that we need to keep this in here, but yeah. have you encountered that in your practice with clients and how to do the tango of like, I don't want to disrespect your belief system, but also you're eventually going to have to believe that you're okay if you want to move forward. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> have encountered this in my practice, but more so it's been people who have left kind of mm-hmm. specific religious sects because in, in those sects they have been raised to believe and internalize that they are bad mm. um, they are inherently bad. And so, you know, yeah, it, it really is working with dismantling that belief. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And it's hard. Yeah. And it's really hard because you feel like you're betraying your family Mm -hmm. and you feel like you're betraying your spirituality. Right. And your your former self. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's grief. Knocking down those pillars, Mm -hmm. those columns. Mm -hmm. And I want to highlight right now that trying to find a universal treatment method for all clients does not do justice the real factors of culture ethnicity socioeconomic status and other demographic factors that influence the needs of each client and you've spoken on this before a bit what what is social stratification and disenfranchised grief Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's a heavy one. Yeah. And this is something that I've studied for many years. So forgive me because I'm, I'm really going to condense it. But social stratification is the actual building of institutions and layers of class and race and economics that place people at a hierarchy. And disenfranchised grief is grief that is not acknowledged by the general public. And it's just not acknowledged at all. Hmm. When people often think of grief, they think of death, but there are so many different forms of grief that are just as valid as losing a person, a human being. Such as? Let's say having an abortion is, is a form of grief. Having a, having a parent is a form of disenfranchised grief. Working in the juvenile justice system for many years, disenfranchised grief that I've seen have been having somebody you love die by suicide um, having somebody you love die by drug overdose, having a parent get incarcerated or a parent being deported. Mm. Um, those are oftentimes disenfranchised grief, like mm. grief that's just minimized. And how do they play into 
inner child healing and therapy at large? Disenfranchised grief, it's a loss. It's a loss. And in order for us to heal our inner child, we have to go back and we have to understand and acknowledge that those were losses that had deep impacts on us as human beings. And oftentimes those losses are internalized as feeling betrayed, feeling abandoned, feeling like you weren't good enough for somebody to stick around hmm. or feeling like you weren't good enough for somebody to to do for your parent to do well for themselves. Hmm. And I think it's it's so crucial that we validate and recognize all the different layers that every person um, is dealing with on mm-hmm. on an identity level and demographically. Mm-hmm. Why is being culturally competent a serious issue, especially in mental health services and human services? Because human beings are complex and each human being is affected by the neighborhood they grew up in the city that they grew up in, what resources were afforded to them or not afforded to them, the language that they spoke at home. Mm -hmm. You know, everything has an impact on our sense of self. And to be able to understand that culturally every single person is different, you know, even people within the same cultures, they're still very different. Mm -hmm. You really want to be mindful of that because you don't want to provide treatment that's generic. And you also don't want to provide treatment that is dismissive. Mm -hmm dismissive because then you are dismissing the person's own unique needs and their own unique story and you can actually end up causing more harm as a professional yeah so much more harm yeah and I just want to include that you know social stratification is a trauma for a lot of communities Hmm. that's we will absolutely make sure that's in there yeah there's a there's a need for mental health professionals to understand systems of oppression and Mm -hmm marginalization so the professional doesn't blame the client or deepen the trauma by Mm -hmm. being an unsafe place you know the therapy room is a microcosm of the macro system and if the system is degrading and dehumanizing and then they're going into therapy for healing and they're experiencing more of the same that's obviously going against the the goal of recovery and wholeness. So I've been studying multicultural counseling just so I can be more aware of how I relate to to my audience at large. And it's amazing to see even the research that's done, how biased it is towards a monocultural ethnocentric lens. So it's it's so critical that we hold everyone accountable. And I I wish Mm -hmm. actually all entertainers and people with public platforms would go through this yeah. i mean I, honestly this should be this should be gen ed yeah this should be in high school elementary just like school. <laughs> financial literacy like yeah. why don't we have racial consciousness programs and education anyway mm-hmm. that's for another day <laughs> if we decide after hearing this conversation that we want to take a step further and seek professional care and support do you have any recommendations on how to best go about finding a therapist that's suitable for us absolutely so for me i i really do believe that therapy is such vulnerable work and regardless of the therapist credentials the number one thing that has been proven to show effectiveness in treatment is the goodness of fit between client and therapist Mm -hmm. so credentials really have very very little to do with how um, much progress you're going to make in therapy so i recommend that people request a free 15-minute phone consultation. Okay. And it's really an opportunity for you to share a little bit of the reasons why you were coming to therapy, what you were looking for in a therapist, and to ask that question, the, to ask that therapist questions 
any questions that you have about therapy or their approach, there are no right or wrong questions. And it's an opportunity for you to assess, do I feel safe? I was going to say, are there obvious red flags and green flags to this? Yeah, I think so. And I've actually posted about therapists, red and green flags. But you want to assess, are they listening to me? Are they hearing me? Are they taking the time in this consultation to ask me questions? Do I feel like they're attuned to me? Does it feel like they're just trying to book a session? Hmm. Do I feel like they genuinely care Hmm. about my growth, regardless if I make an appointment with them or with somebody else? Mm -hmm. Okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any final inner child exercises or prompts that we can use to do some reflection and exploration on our own? Sure. So I've already mentioned pulling up a photo of yourself when you're younger and writing a letter to that version of yourself. Other things that you can do are engaging in play, right? Engaging in play with people who feel safe to you, engaging mm-hmm. in play with games that you played when you were younger giving mm-hmm. yourself permission to have fun and experience joy and and to feel safe you, you know and other ways to connect with your inner child are when you're feeling triggered you can ask yourself these questions how old is this making me feel and when was an earlier time in my life where I felt this way before mm-hmm. and when you can pinpoint what that earlier time in your life was you then want to go back and you want to provide love and support to that earlier version of you Mm. by saying some of the things earlier that you mentioned mm-hmm. i love you you are enough yeah. you can handle this i mm-hmm. believe in you mm. things like that ah oh, my heart is just <laughs> gushing full mm-hmm. thank you so much for for everything for sharing so vulnerably and and also being fantastic at what you do truly everyone listening you have to follow at Alyssa marie wellness a-L-Y-S-S-A-M-A-R-I-E, wellness. And she's posting helpful tidbits daily, and I'm usually resharing them on my story. Thank you. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because I follow a lot of different therapy accounts for a reason. You know, if people ever look at the accounts I follow, they'll see, like, National Geographic, Uh therapists, (laughs) and some kind of, like, human services. Yeah. Because that's what I want you to find. Mm -hmm. And Pharrell. I'm also following Pharrell, because he's (laughs) up. So thank you so much for, for helping us understand ourselves more clearly Thank you so much for helping us understand ourselves more clearly. I hope this engineered some epiphanies for people. And of course, if you want more, you can follow Leah at Alyssa Marie Wellness and go to her website, AlyssaMarieWellness.com. Now it is time for this week's mantras. I will say each twice and you can follow in the space for the third Write it down, memorize them, set reminders on your phone so you can change your thinking and the way you move through this world. Number one, I am worthy of reparenting my inner child and my inner child is worthy of being reparented. I am worthy of reparenting my inner child and my inner child is worthy of being reparented. Number two, I'm willing to explore my past to bring clarity and healing to my present and future. I'm willing to explore my past to bring clarity and healing to my present and future. And finally, 
I deserve to feel safe, experience joy, and play. I deserve to feel safe, experience joy, and play. Yay! Now go have fun! As always, um, be sure to share this with someone if you think it can inspire them or help. And leave a comment with your favorite takeaway. Um, if you haven't already, please leave a rating and review for the podcast. And I will catch you all next week for more Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace!